and welcome to the Health Advocate Podcast. My name is Rebecca Haddock and I'm the Director of the Diebel Institute for Health Policy Research here at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Diebel Institute, we are the research arm of the AAHA and our mission is to help ensure that evidence is a cornerstone for health policy development in Australia. We like to do this through forming practical connections between researchers, policymakers, and practitioners, and also by creating opportunities for our university partners to translate research into good health policy and practice. Today I'm speaking with Caitlin Shaw. Katie is currently undertaking her final year of medicine through James Cook University School of Medicine and Dentistry in Queensland. Katie is also the recipient of a 2020 Jeff Sheverton Memorial Scholarship, which has been established by the AAHA together with Brisbane North Primary Health Network and North Western Melbourne Primary Health Network to honour the excellence of Jeff Sheverton's health leadership. This award supports scholars to specifically develop a health policy issues brief on a topic relevant to primary health, mental health, aged care, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health or LGBTQI health. Katie, welcome to the Health Advocate podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you very much for having me. Katie, you recently spent six weeks with us here at the AAHA to write a health policy issues brief on the integration of general practice pharmacists into primary healthcare settings for chronic disease management. But before we discuss the brief, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your experience as a medical student during the coronavirus pandemic. You were in Canberra as part of your scholarship when the news of the virus first started to circulate. What were your thoughts about it at the time and did you consider what this might mean for your position as a final year medical student? I think when I was in Canberra earlier in the year, especially from an Australian perspective, it was very early days for the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think I was just watching it with interest along with everyone else, especially at the time we had very few Australian cases. And to be perfectly honest, I hadn't actually considered what it might mean for me at that time as a final year medical student. And it wasn't until a few weeks on when a sort of local and global discussion around getting out medical students out into the workforce began that I really started to consider that this might be something that impacted me personally. I considered the fact that the hospitals that I may be working in may be busier, under a bit more stress, and there may be some changes around how we practice medicine, but I hadn't really thought that it would impact me personally. However, as time went on, I realized that that was possibly going to change. At the onset of the coronavirus outbreak in Australia, many universities had plans to fast-track students into early service as clinical assistants in a bid to bolster health systems. We are now on track to flattening the curve, but realistically, efforts to tackle the outbreak will likely continue for months ahead. What has this meant for you as a final year medical student and how do you see or what do you want to see the role of medical students taking shape moving forward, particularly if there's a second wave of the disease? Yeah, so it's been a very, very interesting time to be a final year medical student. Um, It certainly sort of shook our understanding of what our role is in the public healthcare system and what our role can potentially be. So in the UK and the US and in Italy, obviously nations that have been particularly hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they have expedited the graduation of significant proportions of their final year medical students. I know in Italy, they graduated about 10,000 students early and In New South Wales, I know one of the universities in Sydney is fast-tracking their exams for their final year medical students to get them out in the workforce early as well. Here in Queensland, there has been extensive discussions around whether that's something that would be appropriate for our healthcare system here and developing new roles for medical students to undertake so that we're more well utilised in the system to help bolster 
health service delivery. So as a final year medical student, there's been a lot of discussion about us taking on assistant in medicine roles. So as opposed to graduating early and becoming doctors early, um, it's more of an augmented role of what we already do, but we actually are employed by the hospital. So we would be in hospitals helping treating teams look after patients who are likely to to not be affected by COVID-19. So the regular patients, you know, writing notes, uh, making phone calls, those sorts of tasks. Or we would be working in the fever clinics or working as contact tracers or involved in the COVID-19 response itself. So that is sort of the discussions that we've been having for the last few months about how to use predominantly very willing and hopefully capable workforce to help our healthcare system. However, seeing as we have been doing quite well with flattening the curve, this is something that has been shelved for the time being, which seems you know very appropriate in terms of what's happening currently. But as you say, if there is a second wave of COVID-19 that will affect our communities at any time soon, I consider that we are sort of a, a waiting and willing group who would be more than happy to get involved any way that we can if we do see a, a jump in cases after you know social distancing restrictions are lifted. I know that myself and a number of my peers are still pretty keen to get involved. And I think if that happens later down the track, then that will still, yeah, we'll still be interested to join the team. What, if anything, do you feel like you've missed out on as a consequence of the pandemic from what you normally would have done this year? From a personal perspective, I've actually been incredibly lucky this year. I undertook an international elective over January and February and was able to do that elective over in the States because, you know, this was just the beginning of the pandemic. And now I'm on my rural placement in a small rural community in outback Queensland, which I've also been able to do. So from a personal perspective, other than regular teaching sessions that would usually occur in hospitals for junior members of staff and for students, which have been canceled, I've actually probably not missed out on too much and I've been very fortunate. However, a number of my peers have not had the same experience. Those of whom would be undertaking international placements later in the year, they've all been cancelled. And a lot of my peers who would be in sort of regional or metropolitan hospitals this year have not been able to attend their clinical placements and certainly have been able to attend teaching. So they have missed out on a lot of learning and teaching opportunities, which does affect our, you know, confidence and ability to join the medical workforce in 2021. Katie, does that affect their ability to graduate? At the moment, no. So this has been quite a in-depth discussion between the medical schools, the relevant health departments and the medical student body about graduation. So luckily at the university that I attend, we undertake all of our core rotations and final exams in our fifth year of study and our sixth year of study is all practical placement based and we, I guess, have ticked all the boxes. But other universities, they undertake their core rotations in their final year. So if they're unable to attend their core rotations or sit those exams, their graduation is threatened, which is a significant concern heading into 2021 where we need a work-ready junior doctor workforce. So luckily at my university, that's not been so much of a concern. However, from a student perspective, it has been a concern because we obviously want to feel that we're ready and your sort of final six to 12 months of study is where you really get a sense of what it's like and you learn a lot of those skills. So even though our graduation has not been threatened, I think it has been a concern amongst the medical student body that they're sort of missing out on some learning opportunities. However, I think on the whole, most people have been able to do what they would usually do. 
So it hasn't been too much of a problem, especially now that we are doing so well with flattening the curve and students are sort of returning to hospital, getting involved in the teams. I think generally speaking, everyone will be more than ready to to be an intern next year. One of the greatest concerns for all doctors at the moment is PPE. How have students been dealing with the availability of PPE? This has been very problematic as well. The small rural hospital in which I work currently, it has not been a concern, mainly because we haven't had any cases of COVID-19 in our health district. And there is a good availability of PPE. But I know that in the larger uh, regional and metropolitan hospitals, it's been a significant concern. And there has been reports of students feeling that they don't have access to PPE and that they would be expected to work on the wards without it. We have been advised as a student body that if there's any situation where you feel that you're not adequately protected, that you're well within your rights to refuse to enter a patient's room, provide any care or have any interaction with anyone that might um, put you at risk of exposure whilst not being appropriately protected. So I think having that assurance that we're able to voice our concerns and act appropriately has been really supportive for students. And I think for most people that's sort of dealt with that issue because no one, whether they're a healthcare worker or a student, should be exposed to a patient without appropriate PPE, even though we have been dealing with a number of shortages. I think most students would feel more comfortable not attending a consultation or not participating in patient care and missing out on that learning opportunity as opposed to being there but not being protected. Katie, you've mentioned a couple of times that your placement is in a rural town. Can you comment on anything new or innovative being done in the hospital as a consequence of corona that you didn't necessarily expect to encounter during your placement? And what is the general mood in the community? Yes, well, I must say in terms of the community, I've been very pleasantly surprised um, and heartened that the community is taking this incredibly seriously. Um, We are a small rural community of about a thousand residents in central western Queensland. So we're quite an isolated community. And I think perhaps because of that, the community really values our isolation and the fact that we've been well protected so far. So everyone is really keen to make sure that we don't have any coronavirus cases here. So I guess the mood in the town is people are concerned, they are worried, but they have been following all the rules. The social distancing practices have been quite impressive, to be honest. And I haven't seen many people out and about in town, especially with all the pubs being closed. Um, Everyone is handling it really well. In terms of new and innovative practices here, it's been really fantastic, actually, to be involved in how we're doing things differently. So this year, myself and a number of the clinical nurses have been running an influenza vaccination clinic out of the showgrounds. So residents that we have determined to be uh, eligible for the publicly funded flu vaccine have been booked into a clinic at the showgrounds and they drive in their cars and we go out to the car, we consent them for the vaccine and we give them their flu needle while they're in their car. It's been really, really fun. I've met a lot of members of the community here. We've vaccinated roughly 40% of the population and have had really good feedback about, you know, just how convenient it is for patients, one, and also how everyone feels adequately protected. No one wants to come into the hospital or the general practice clinic at the moment because everyone wants to be protected. So being able to stay in their cars, have no contact with anyone has been, um, yeah, they've really appreciated it. And it's been a really fun thing to be involved in the community. It's been a bit of a a talking point here. And perhaps uh, based on the feedback that we've had and how it's also been received by staff, it might be the the new way of doing things here. So 
the first of many years of running a showground clinic, which could be a lot of fun. So coming back to your scholarship and your time at the AAHA, can you tell us a little bit about your brief and what were the main recommendations? Yeah, so as we've mentioned, the title of my brief is Integration of General Practice Pharmacists into Primary Healthcare Settings for Chronic Disease Management. Uh, so the idea of my brief was to explore the role that general practice pharmacists can play in improving chronic disease management for general practice patients. So general practice pharmacist is a pharmacist, like a registered pharmacist, who is integrated into primary healthcare teams to provide clinical services to patients and other practitioners. So these are things like reviewing medications that patients are on, educating them about their medications and providing medication safety initiatives and auditing the practice and their uh, patient charts. So what we have found from quite extensive evidence from overseas, uh, predominantly in the UK, uh, the US and Canada, is that where pharmacists have been integrated into practicing clinics, they provide high quality care to patients they improve uh, patient outcomes and their health outcomes. And they're also very well appreciated by the patients and the practitioners. From the research that I've conducted, the feedback from patients and staff is very positive. Uh, patients feel that their healthcare is of a high quality. They feel like they've been listened to and uh, they feel like they're receiving better healthcare. And doctors as well really appreciate a medication specialist on their team because not all doctors can be experts on all medications at all times, but that's the job of the pharmacist. So they really do provide excellent care. But this is a model of care that hasn't been, it's not well integrated in the Australian healthcare system currently. There are a few examples of where it has been used with good outcomes but it's not widespread and it's it's very much early days here in Australia so it's something that I thought was really valuable to look into and see what we can do here in our Australian context to utilize the pharmacist workforce to improve chronic disease management and primary care. So in terms of the recommendations of the brief the first thing that I thought was important is that we need to basically agree on a standardized term for a general practice pharmacist. There are many different titles used to describe this role. So we've used general practice pharmacist. A non-dispensing pharmacist is another, uh, just a practice-based pharmacist, a clinical pharmacist, or sometimes just pharmacist. The issues there being obviously that it can be a bit confusing to understand what the role is. Um, if we're all using different words all the time. So the first recommendation is to decide on a standardized term to kind of make it a bit easier to understand what we're talking about. Uh, secondly, I've recommended that we need to also decide upon a recognized position description for general practice pharmacists. That's also something that's not nationally recognized at the moment and a scope of practice for general practice pharmacists as well not only to help general practices and doctors understand what a general practice pharmacist can do, but to help them as well understand the role because it is quite new. And I think a lot of pharmacists who work in community pharmacies or in hospital pharmacies might not understand what is required of them if they're going to work in primary care. So it would be very valuable to have a defined framework for them to use to understand their role. Thirdly, I've recommended that governments, so both state and federal governments in conjunction with their local health networks um, should support this model of care to be integrated. Obviously, it takes everyone to be on board for something like this to work. Uh, again, 
of course, like any model of care, this needs to be underpinned by supportive policy frameworks and appropriate funding models as well to ensure the sustainability of general practice pharmacists over time. Obviously, it wouldn't really be possible without that. Another thing that I believe is important going forward is that we need to have uh, consistent and standardised data collection around quality of care indicators that GPPs have an impact on. So this includes things like health outcome measures. So for example, blood pressure, cholesterol and sugar control for people who have diabetes, because these are the really important outcomes for patients in terms of understanding their the trajectory of their condition and how they'll fare in the future. So it's really important for us to understand whether GPP management actually improves those sorts of things for patients. It would also be good to consistently understand how patients perceive their care, whether they're happy with this sort of service, whether they feel that their experience with the healthcare system is better, and also tracking things like how many medications pharmacists are de-prescribing, how many that they're recommending to be prescribed, which all falls under sort of quality use of medications. So keeping a track of whether the use of medications in our primary care centres is of a high quality so that we can see overall whether this model of care is actually impacting outcomes. And obviously, as part of that, governments uh, do need to support further trials of GPPs because a number of trials have been undertaken in Australia, but there are large parts of the community that haven't had anything like this before. And obviously it would be valuable to get a sense of how different communities in different geographical locations and different patient demographics would respond. So supporting further trials and data collection would also be really important. Katie, it's been a pleasure working with you. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more information on the Deeble Health Policy Research Scholarships Program, you can find it at the AHHA website or follow us on Twitter at Deeble Institute or at Oz Healthcare.